Well, around my house, I have a reputation of being forgetful. And uh, I thought today I would share a story of me being forgetful, but I can't remember any. <laughs> this is true. I, I can't remember any. My wife's in Asheville with our, our daughter. We, our, another of our grandsons was born this week, and so she's out there. And I couldn't think of any stories, and I don't dare ask. Um, but I know I'm not alone in this. So I started poking around on some uh, uh, chat room places and things like this, and I found some fabulous stories. Uh, guy says, I was driving to work, which is about 15 to 20 minutes away, when I realized that I forgot my keys. Even though I was halfway there and I was going to be late, I went ahead and turned around when I got back home and looked for my keys. I was frustrated that I couldn't find them. Then I realized I was holding them because I had been driving. <laughs> this one comes from across, across the seas. I went to the petrol station the other night to get some fuel. I kept minimal money in my debit account to try and save money, build interest in my other account. So I got to the station after work and couldn't find my phone anywhere to transfer the money. Searched the whole car and my handbag, all the little gaps in my car, basically everywhere, and I just couldn't find it. Turns out it was in my hand the whole time. I was using the light on my phone to look for my phone. Here's one more. Um, guy says, I do not like Del Taco, but I was in California on business, and there was one right next to my hotel, and I was very tired and very hungry. Long line at the drive-in, inches forward slowly, and I'm trying not to fall asleep in my car, and I pay for my meal and collect the food and drive off before realizing that I never ordered. I had driven right by the order box and paid for and collected the meal of whoever was behind me in line. Yeah, we, uh, you laugh because you do this stuff, right? You know, we are a forgetful lot. There's a novel, uh, 100 Years of Solitude by uh, Garcia Marquez, and the author describes this little village, and they are suffering from an insomnia plague, and as this plague continues, it gradually causes loss of memory. And so to try and salvage the memory, Marquez describes how a man named Jose developed an elaborate plan that involved labeling everything. Um, with an inked brush, he marked everything with its name. Table, chair, clock, wall, bed, pan. He went on to the corral and marked the animals and plants. Cow, goat, pig, hen, banana. He labeled them all. And as their memory continued to fade... Jose decided that he needed to be even more explicit, so he posted a sign on the cow that read, This is the cow. She must be milked every morning so that she will produce milk, and the milk must be boiled in order to be mixed with coffee to make coffee and milk. Eventually, the village even had to put a placard at the entrance to the town that said, God exists, because the knowledge of that too was being forgotten. But that's just a novel. We would never forget God, would we? And our passage today is built on the premise um, that if left to our own devices, we will. And it puts in place, it's interesting, God puts into place an elaborate process that functions very much like a placard that reads this. God exists, you really should trust him. And so you'll find the story in Joshua chapter 4 as we study the book of Joshua together. Open there. And I'd like to pray for our time as we look at Joshua 4 together. Bow with me, please.
Lord, have mercy on us now as we open up uh, your words to us. Help us to receive them as just that, as your words to us for our good because you love us. And so send your spirit now to bear them to us with, with his great skill, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So by way of review, God's people enslaved in Egypt 400 years, dramatically rescued only to wander the desert for another 40 years. At the beginning of Joshua, we find the people of Israel standing on the verge of entering the land that God had promised them long, long before. But they had two big problems. Moses, their leader, was dead. And the Jordan River stood in their way. In the first three chapters of Joshua, God has taken care of both of those problems. First, he gave them Joshua to lead in Moses' place. Uh, Right away in chapter 1, verse 5. No one, no man, God says, shall be able to stand before you, Joshua, all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I'll be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Verse 17 of the same chapter. People say, just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you, Joshua. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. And he was. He was. He was with Joshua. The second problem he addressed by damming up, we saw Jake taught us this last week, by damming up somehow, miraculously damming up the Jordan River so that the people could cross it. Back in chapter 3 we read this. When the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the Ark were dipped in the brink of the water, Now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest. The waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarethan, and those flowing down toward the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off. And the people passed over opposite Jericho. And now the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. And all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. And so as Jake encouraged us last week in chapter 3, these things, um, I'm going to review a bit of that today. Go back into that because chapter 3 and chapter 4 are really seamless and so we'll review two of the big lessons Jake encouraged us in last week. And then I'm going to put another layer on top of them from chapter 4. So, again, in chapter 3, the people are standing at the edge of the River Jordan about to cross over into the land God had promised them. And in the middle of it, you heard it, they try, uh, he draws this attention to this little detail He gives you a report on the river in verse 15. As soon as those bearing the ark had come as far as the Jordan and the feet of the priests bearing the ark were dipped in the brink of the water. And then he gives you this little kind of weather report, right? Now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest. Um, The river was at flood stage, we could call it. Um, It may not mean anything to you, but before I was a pastor, I was a civil engineer. And my area of specialization was hydrology and hydraulics, flood control. 
It's what I did. It's what I did for a living. I built computer models of rivers and streams so that I could project who would get flooded and how to help them. And so if you've ever bought a house and they rolled out a flood insurance map, I was one of the guys who developed that map, determined whether or not you would be flooded and have to pay that extra money for flood insurance. I'm sorry. Okay. Uh, I didn't do it here, though. I did it in Texas. And uh, one, of the, one of the large projects I worked on was down near a place called Victoria, Texas, just north of Houston, on this river. This is the Guadalupe the Guadalupe, we called it the Guadalupe, uh, the Guadalupe River that runs through there. And it's, a, it's normally this a beautiful river, a lot of this kind of stuff, a lot of tubing goes on. This is the, this is the Guadalupe. Uh, it's a wonderful place. You can tell it's fairly popular. Uh, but here it is at flood stage. Okay, when it, it is flat as a pancake there. And when that river gets out, it gets out for miles. Um, um, a gentle stream can be transformed into a life-threatening, raging river when it is at flood stage. Now, the Jordan River, here's some older pictures of the Jordan River. Uh, here's one of its, at its normal stage. I think you can give me that. Actually, that, if you'll go back one, I'll, uh, that's a flooded house in the middle of a street in Victoria, Texas. It's not supposed to be there. This is what happens when you've, at flood stage. It's a dangerous, dangerous time. So here's the Jordan River at its normal stage. Uh, here's a picture of the Jordan at flood stage. When that river gets out of its banks, uh, this is what it looks like. When it's confined at flood stage, you get something that looks like this. I think we have a, a video clip of modern, what the, this is actually the Jordan River um, at flood stage when it's still confined to its banks. And... Uh, this, this is where, this is the kind of thing they crossed, right? You're going to take your children and you're going to wade across that thing. Um, you can go on to the next one and stop that, that's good. Um, clearly, you don't have to have a degree in civil engineering to tell this is the worst possible time to cross a river, right? I mean, any time but flooding time at, at flood stage. Um, why would God pick this time? And I think uh, Jake or Kevin said, hey, now he's just showing off, right? And, and there's a sense in which that's absolutely true. God wants to leave his people with no doubt, this is a miracle. Okay. This is the intervention of God in the world on behalf of his people in a miraculous kind of way. Now, it's interesting. There are instances in history when the Jordan River has been dammed up by some kind of landslide related perhaps to an earthquake. That has happened uh, through naturally occurring causes. But if nothing else, the timing of this, the language that's used, and then the timing of it seals the deal that this is not some naturally occurring situation. Uh, verse 13 of chapter 3, when the, when the soles of the feet of the priests 
Bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. As soon as their feet touched the water, and that's what happened. Verse 15, as soon as those bearing the ark had come down as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the ark were dipped in the brink of the water, and it was flooding, right? The waters came down from above, stood, and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam. On the other side of things, when they came out of the water, same kind of miraculous timing. Um, When the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, this is chapter 4, came up from the midst of the Jordan and the soles of the priest's feet were lifted up on dry ground, the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and overflowed all its banks as before. Um, This is a miracle. This is not... It's the greatest coincidence in the history of the world that a an earthquake happened, and then another one happened just when the priest's feet happened to touch and leave the water. This is a miracle. God is doing this, right? And they are standing on the edge of an insurmountable obstacle, but God had promised them what was on the other side. You know, back in chapter 1, Joshua commanded the people and said, Pass through the midst of the camp and command the people, prepare your provisions. For within three days, you're going to pass over this Jordan to go and to take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. And they're thinking, yeah, right. It's harvest time. The river's flooding. See, what they are really facing here is not so much the issue of the river. They are facing an issue of trust. Right? Will they trust God? Or won't they? That's really what's going on here. And it all depends on what they believe about God. And as the spies reported, they believe that God rules over all. And this this land that he has promised them is his land to give to them. They said it to Joshua in chapter 2. The Lord has given all the land into our hands. They believed that God could do this. Um, they are expressing what I grew up. It's called, I call it dinner table theology. right? Uh, in my childhood, we were, a, we were a church-going family, but... Not a praying family very much. We would pray at meals, and we always prayed one very simple little prayer that I was taught. God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for our food. That was it. That was a whole nine yards. That was our prayer life in my family. It was a fabulous prayer for me to learn as a child because it taught me two things, two unshakable things about God, that he was great and that he was good. And as they stand at the edge of the river here, they believe that about God. Of course, the real question was not, did I learn the prayer? Could I say the prayer? But did I believe the prayer? Did I believe that this is true about God? Do you? Well, that's way too convicting. Let's get back to the story. The answer is in their, do they believe it? The answer is in their obedience, right? That's how you know if they believe that, that's what God's like. Do they obey him? If you say you trust in God, 
but you don't obey him, do you really trust him? Or is that just talk? It is for the people of Israel, as they say, it's time to put up or shut up, right? And the people of Israel put up. Look, look in chapter 3, verse 17. The priests bearing the ark of the covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. And all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. They walk out into that riverbed that was formerly known as flooded because they trust God to keep his promise and deliver them to the other side. Now the big point here, as Jake taught us last week, this is God's work. Okay? God is doing this work. And everything about the way it's orchestrated, this parade is orchestrated, is designed to teach that. The Ark of the Covenant is equated, it's literally equated with the presence of God. And the priests are his representatives. And they go in first and they come out last. This is God's work. He is doing what he promised. He is bringing them into the land that was promised to Abraham long, long, long before. Author Ray Vanderland says, Many ancient people considered their homeland rivers sacred. The people of India revered the Ganges and the Egyptians honored the Nile. For the pagans who lived in Canaan, the Jordan River symbolized the power and protection of their fertility gods, the Baals. And the Israelites stepped out in faith, trusting God in spite of their fear of the fast-flowing floodwaters. And the pagans were stunned to see that Israel's God stopped the Jordan's water. God is proving himself to be who Rahab in chapter 2 confessed him to be, right? The Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. And it's interesting, this act of trust in God starts with the priests, right? They're the first ones that have to put their, there's still water there. They put their feet in the water. It is not dry. And God says, pick up the ark, carry it into the river. And they do. They do. The priests are the first to enter the water and the last to leave it. The priests get their feet wet first. And they are the spiritual leaders of the people, right? And so... Elders, our elders, our deacons, our ministry leaders, our staff, our small group leaders. Based on the example of your obedience. That old saying is true, speed of the leader, speed of the team. How's the speed of our church based on your obedience? Are your feet getting wet first? Trusting God and obeying Him. Is there an area in your life of protected 
or protracted disobedience to God? Is there something you're sheltering, you're not dealing with? You know, as leaders of the church, it is so, so important that we lead in this, in anything that we lead in this. Um, and Joshua, his lead, his, as their leader, his obedience is stellar. He, he, when God speaks to him, he speaks to the people faithfully. I mean, he just takes what God says and he delivers it. Um, and that's one reason there's so much repetition here. You hear God speaking to Joshua. God says this to Joshua. And Joshua turns around and he says it to the people. And so you've got lots of repetition in this story. Um, because of Joshua's relaying what God says almost verbatim in obedience to God, to the people. And this, of course, is the great calling of a Christian teacher or a Christian leader. We speak for God. We say what he says. Not what we think. Not what we want to say. Not what one of our heroes has said. We say what God says. That's our calling. And Joshua does it flawlessly. He does it faithfully here. And that's the mark of his life. In Exodus 17, there's this situation. Um, Moses is still there. Joshua's his understudy. Uh, a pagan king Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him. Moses goes up on a hill. Joshua goes and fights. I think a lot of us would have had a problem with that arrangement. Not Joshua. He did what Moses told him. He understood that Moses was speaking for God here. And he, he went and did it. Um, Another example, Numbers 32. Um, all the spies go into the land to spy out Canaan. They come back with a bad report except for two, Joshua and Caleb. And that last phrase, Joshua the son of Nun, was known as one who had wholly followed the Lord. That's his legacy. And he states his own legacy at the end of the book of Joshua. In Joshua 24, this is what Joshua says at the end of his life. Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And this is one of the reasons that God is so willing to exalt Joshua as their leader. In chapter 3, the Lord says to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all. And in our story in chapter 4, On that day the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel. Speed of the leader, speed of the team. Leaders, how's your speed? Especially in the area of obedience. Obviously, obedience is not just the mark of our leaders. It's to mark every one of us. Jesus' commands are simple and straightforward. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And verse 21 is just as blunt. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father. Um, 
Obedience to Jesus is to be our mark as his followers. Indeed, are we really followers of Jesus if we don't obey him? If we don't follow him? And the, Joshua's obedience is amazing here. So is the people's obedience. Look at how it's described in chapter 4. For the priests bearing the ark stood in the midst of the Jordan until everything was finished that the Lord commanded Joshua to tell the people according to all that Moses had commanded Joshua. And the people passed over in haste. And when the, all the people had finished passing over the ark of the Lord and the priests passed over before the people. So again... <clears throat> the ark represents the presence of God and the priests are his representative. And this is about as close to having God right in the midst of things as you could possibly have in the Old Testament. And the language of obedience is all over this. Everybody is following commands, right? Joshua is doing what Moses says and people are doing what Joshua says. Everybody's obeying and it says the people passed over in haste. You know, I bet they did. You're looking off in the distance and you see this wall of water. I'm, if it's me, I'm hurrying across the riverbed. I'm not dawdling there. Um, but, you know, the emphasis there is not on their haste. It's on their obedience. They were quick to obey God. When he said cross, they crossed. Okay. Even if it meant taking their little ones to a very dangerous place in the direct path of a pile of water. Moms took their little ones into that riverbed, put their lives in danger, unless God was faithful. They trusted God because they knew God to be trustworthy. That's, see, remember back in chapter 2, that's why Rahab trusted him. She really believed According to her own words back in chapter 2, she believed that Yahweh had given the Israelites the land where she and her people lived. She believed that. She believed that Yahweh had miraculously dried up the Red Sea. She believed that Yahweh had enabled Israel to overthrow even giant kings, men of amazing stature. And she confessed that Yahweh is God in the heavens above and the earth below. She trusted God because she knew him to be trustworthy. We trust God for the same reason. We know him to be trustworthy. We know him to be both great and good. Do you know God like that? Are you willing to trust God and follow him, even to places that are fearful for you, to do things that you're afraid to do? Uh, Pastor John Artberg tells a really helpful story. He says, a few weeks ago, when I was out surfing, there was no one else in the water except for a huge guy practicing martial arts on the beach. He says, after I'd been out a little while, a tiny wisp of a kid came paddling up out of nowhere. I couldn't believe he was out there by himself. He pulled his little board up right next to mine. He was so small, he hardly needed a board. He could have stood up in the ocean on a frisbee. He told me his name was Shane. He asked me how long I'd been surfing. I asked him how long he'd been surfing. Seven years, he said. How old are you, I asked. Eight. And then he said, what I like about surfing is that it's so peaceful. You meet a lot of nice people out here. 
So we talked a little longer, and then I asked him, um, how'd you get here, Shane? And he says, oh, my dad brought me, he said. And then he turned around and waved at the nearly empty beach, and the Goliath doing martial arts waved back. Hi, son, he called out. He said, then I knew why Shane was so at home in the ocean. It wasn't his size. It wasn't his skill. It was who was sitting on the beach. His father was always watching. And his father was very big. (laughs) Shane wasn't really alone at all. And then he says, neither are we. Do you trust God? There's an old hymn. It goes like this. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust, trust and obey. They go together. I think they might have been humming that tune as they walked out into the riverbed. Okay, the hymn's not that old, but you get the idea. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. Um, But our story suggests maybe there is another way. Not like a different way, but an additional way. According to our passage, it would go like this. Trust and obey, remember and repeat. Okay, That's what our story teaches. Trust and obey, remember and repeat. That's what chapter 4 is really pushing on us. This is the add-on that it brings to chapter 3. Remember and repeat. Look at it with me, starting in verse 1. When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Take twelve men from the people, from each tribe a man, and command them, saying, Take twelve stones from here, out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. And then Joshua called the twelve men from the people of Israel, whom he had appointed, a man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan, and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, that this may be a sign among you. When your children ask in time to come, What do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. And when it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. And as you would expect, Joshua is going to faithfully repeat these instructions at the end of the chapter. Drop down verse 19. The people come up out of the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month, and they encamped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And those twelve stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And when he said to the people of Israel, when your children ask your fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know. Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. So in between these two remembrance acts is some more pretty amazing obedience. Uh, Look at verses 8 through 13. The people of Israel did just as Joshua commanded. And took up twelve stones out of the midst of the Jordan, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, just as the Lord told Joshua. And they carried them over with them to the place where they lodged and laid them down there. And Joshua set up twelve stones in the midst of the Jordan, in the place where the feet of the priests uh, bearing the Ark of the Covenant had stood, and they are there to this day. For the priests bearing the Ark stood in the midst of the Jordan until everything was finished, that the Lord commanded Joshua to tell the people according to all that Moses had commanded Joshua. 
And the people passed over in haste. And when all the people had finished passing over the ark of the Lord, and the priests passed over before the people, and the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh passed over and armed before the people of Israel as Moses had told them. About 40,000 ready for war passed over before the Lord for battle to the plains of Jericho. So, you read this story and everybody's doing what they're told, right? Everybody's obeying God. And uh, it's the, the chronology here doesn't follow out in a, in a tidy line. It's hard to tell what happened where. And if you read it closely, it almost sounds like there's two stacks of stones. One in the middle of the river and one on the land, on the, in the promised land. Um, it's, it's perhaps better to think of the fact that there was one stack that was first down where the priests were in the middle of the river, and they moved those stones up into the promised land. But um, be it as it may, the purpose is to serve as a sign to help them remember. But in terms of their obedience, I love that after the nation crossed, the priests are still there in the middle of the floodplain. Until God releases them through Joshua's words to come out. Um, I'd be getting nervous. Um, if it was me at that point, I'd be looking over my shoulder. They stay. Last one's in, last one's out. And I, I love these 12 guys who, it, again, the chronology is different, difficult to sort out exactly. It may be that they got all the way over to the other side of everybody. And Joshua says, I want you to go back in and get those rocks that are where the priests are. And so it's like they're doing a double crossing here. They get across and they go back and they bring out these 12 large stones. These are some trusting people, right? They obey God. But let's look at this kind of God-given memory exercise a little closer. Verses 2 to 4. It says, take 12 men from the people, from each tribe a man. And command them, saying, Take twelve stones from here out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. And Joshua called the twelve men from the people of Israel, and he appointed a man from each tribe, and they did what they were supposed to do. And the twelve business is significant because the twelve men represent the twelve tribes of the nation of Israel. And there was a man from each tribe. There was a man that represented each tribe. Because this act of remembrance is for them all. It is for every single tribe. It is for all of God's people. All of them. This is a memorial for all of them. And for their children. There's a tremendous emphasis here on passing on this account of the trustworthiness of God to their children. Remember and repeat. Right? Remember and repeat. Pass it on to your children. And so they pile up stones. I think they were big stones. Like you have to carry them on your shoulder kind of stones. Evidently this is a thing in Tibet. A stone carrying contest. But these were big stones. Guys... Throwing them on their shoulder, carrying them up. Why pile up the stones? Because God isn't doing this every day, right? This is not the normal means of crossing the Jordan in lieu of a bridge. I need to go to the other side. You might part the Jordan for me. This is a one-time thing. This is a great miracle, which is a rarely occurring thing that God has done. And 
this, these stones help remember what God has done so they will trust him in the in-between times. They will remember and they will repeat the circle. Trust, obey, remember, repeat. Okay, the stones help them. And plus, kids love object lessons, right? If you teach in our children's ministry, if you own any children... Um, They love it when you teach with stuff. Uh, that's, that's why sometimes I bring things in and do sermons because it's for the children, right? They love object lessons. Uh, they love them. The story was for them and their children and their descendants. This story is to be passed down to us and our children we need to remember this story, how great our God is and how committed he is to his children and to his promises to us. Someone said that the greatest enemy of faithfulness may be forgetfulness. And so this story needs to be told to our kids. And dads, uh, I know sometimes you, you feel like the Bible's an intimidating thing and you have to know Greek and Hebrew and stuff. You don't have to you got to be able to stack stones to tell this story. Take your kid to the creek in the subdivision. Take them down to the noose. Find a dozen rocks. Stack them up together. And then sit down and talk about what God did. And how the priest walked out in the middle of that river because God had dammed it up. And then you know, they walked, the whole nation walked through. And then as soon as the priest's foot stepped out of the riverbed, it ca you can do this. You can tell this story to your kids. And we should. Plus, we have our own stories of God's faithfulness, right? We, we have stories um, that we can tell our kids about our own lives, um, like stacking our own stones, right? Uh, Exchange Church, our, our church uh, plant in Roseville, they have a testimony time, and they call it Stacking Stones, it's a way of remembering the faithfulness of God together. I, you know, one of those stories for me, I, I remember it's been uh, 32 years. And I still remember this story, even with my memory. I remember this story. I was uh, in graduate school, in seminary. I was working, I was still working uh, in my engineering job. And my wife, I'm in my engineering office. My wife calls me and she says, guess what? We're going to have a baby. And I'm like, well, how about that? We're going to have a baby. That's the best news I've gotten all day. And my boss calls me in his office and he says, Larry, i got some news. Uh, we just opened a new office and we don't have enough work for you. So we're going to have to let you go. That was not the best news I'd gotten all day. And I remember thinking, oh, this is fabulous. Uh, the day I find out that I'm going to be a dad, I find out that I can't provide for my family. And I remember choosing to trust God. And I remember that I never missed a day of work. I never missed a day of work. We had another office in another part of the Dallas area, and they had a slot for me. And so the next day, I packed up my bag, and I went to work in Dallas instead of going to Fort Worth. And, uh, you know, that's a pile of stones in my mind, it reminds me of how faithful God is to his people. How faithful he is to me. 
What kind of promises has God made to us, to you? You know, Israel got this river crossing promise, but what kind of everyday promises do we get from God? You know, things, I think of things like God has promised that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose in Romans chapter 8. He's promised comfort in our trials in 2 Corinthians 1. He's promised peace when we pray in Philippians 4. He's promised to supply our needs in Matthew chapter 6 and in Philippians 4. He's promised to bear our sins. And we go on and on and on with very real promises God has made to us. Ten years ago, last Sunday, um, I was on the phone with my dad for the last time. He was about to die. And I remember, again with great clarity, reading these words to him. John 5, 24, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. And I read him John 6, 40, over the phone, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And those were amongst my very last words to my dad. And you know, we, we can take those things as vague and nebulous sometimes take them for granted, but I tell you what, when someone you love is taking their last breath, those promises matter. And I believe them. I believe them. I trust my parents' eternity to these promises. I trust my kids. I trust my grandsons to these promises. I trust these promises. And I believe that he will do, that God will do. In fact, he has done much more than part rivers to make them come true. It's interesting, the parallels throughout the story between Moses and Joshua. He keeps kind of drawing our attention to it. Moses and Joshua. Moses and Joshua. Um, And between the crossing of the Jordan and the crossing of the Red Sea, a couple times they kind of come up together and you get the sense there's a pattern here. That this is how God works. This is how he loves to work to rescue his people. Flood stage. God steps in. Ray Vanderland writes, The gospel accounts tell us that Jesus' baptism took place, of all places, in the Jordan River. And the Jordan which is a place for trusting God and taking the first step, was the place where Jesus began his own ministry. And just as the Israelites' crossing began a new era of life in the promised land, so Jesus' baptism also brought a new beginning in the life of God's people. And the new work that God began in the Jordan, Jesus finished on the cross. Jesus, whose name actually comes from the Hebrew name Joshua, has become a new Joshua for us, and he has made a way. It's often likened 
to a bridge. A way that will carry us across the river of sin that separates us from life with God. And we will be his children. He will be our father. And as helpful as that illustration is, I guess Jesus is even more than a bridge and more than a, some kind of miraculous dam that stops the flow of these things. Jesus becomes a substitute who takes our sin and dies in our place. He takes it. Peter says, Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you've been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And so all these Old Testament things, these great miracles, are pointing to what God is ultimately doing in Jesus on the cross. Our passage ends with this kind of purpose statement in verse 23 and 24. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea. There's that comparison again. Which he dried up for us until we passed over. So that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty. That you may fear the Lord your God forever. If you connect this purpose statement with what he said in chapter 3. Where he says in verse 10. Joshua said here is how you shall know that the living God is among you. And that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites. The Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. All the peoples of the land. We see God's purpose clearly in this miracle. He is striking fear into the hearts of the people in the land. So that they will be driven out before his people. And he is wanting his people to fear him rightly and fear him forever. He says, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. And the way we do that is we trust and we obey and we remember and we repeat. We trust, we obey, we remember, and we repeat. And this table that we celebrate, it's one of those stacking stone kind of things that God does for us to help us remember and repeat and trust and obey and remember and repeat. Um, every year during Lent, we celebrate communion every Sunday. Lent will start in just two weeks from today. And we'll celebrate this memorial every Sunday to help us do that, to, to trust and obey and to remember and repeat. So let me close us. Our, our time is, is gone. So let me close us just with a, a chance for you to pray. And so if you'll bow before, I'd like to just lead you as the worship team comes. As you bow before God, honestly, <clears throat> do you feel like you know God well enough to trust Him? Are you seeking God to know Him in that way? Are you getting your feet wet by obeying God even when it's scary for you? Or are you protecting, because of fear, a place of disobedience in your life? Are you remembering well 
Are you passing on stories of trusting God to your kids? Are you trusting in Jesus' saving cross work that that will be enough to allow you to cross the river of sin that is sweeping you away and allow you to come into a promised relationship with God as your Father? And so, God, this morning we pray, don't let us forget you. Surround us and our children with signs that declare that you exist and that you are to be trusted. This we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. And if you'll stand, we'll close with this declaration of our, our trust in God together.